he tells us that when Arcadia grows up, she's going to be famous for two things. One is writing a biography of her grandmother, Beta, and the other is for writing crappy romance novels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Star's End, a Foundation podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to the Foundation universe, both the classic novels written by Isaac Asimov and the upcoming adaptation from Apple+. Plus. I'm John, and I'm your co-host. My name is Dan, and I'm also your co-host. We're going to read Asimov's novels together and talk about how they look from a 21st century perspective. We'll also talk about show news as it comes out, and when season one airs later in 2021, we'll talk about each episode. And I'm Joseph. All three of us are middle-aged white guys who read the Foundation novels as teens, but we're not here to gatekeep, just the opposite. After all, Foundation is about how societies must evolve or die, and we want to help hand this story off to a younger and more diverse families. This week we have a new trailer from Apple TV, and we have some more Asimov trivia questions, and then we're going to finish the story of Second Foundation. And then we'll have one more episode after this before we're actually getting episodes of the TV show. So that's very exciting. And uh, so Dan, let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about that new trailer we got. Sure thing. So we're not going to play this trailer for everyone. Uh, I think it, it's a little bit long. You can go ahead and go on to YouTube and look for the latest Foundation trailer if you're interested. Or find um, it on our website. Or find it on our website, indeed. Um, but we've watched it, and uh, what are our thoughts, gentlemen, on what this adds to our expectation? Well, it's very explodey. It's very explodey. Yeah, gorgeous. Yes. Um, anything that jumps out at, at me that seems like possibly new information is it looks like Gail Dornick is a very major character, unlike in the novels. Yeah, I think we, you know, we kind of gathered... Yep. that already uh from previous trailers but this trailer is is I, I agree even more so given that she she's given her own kind of voiceover to start the trailer mm -hmm. um and it really kind of frames it in terms of her experience maybe even growing up hearing about harry selden before uh kind of joining his team yeah uh, a lot of um i mean a lot of beautiful sets as i've said before very reminiscent of the uh the old dune movie which was not a great movie but but looked fantastic and uh, we'll see how the new one looks october 22nd but that's neither here nor there um i i think that um it it did strike me as i think the word i used was breathless mm -hmm. um very uh self-serious maybe which uh, i guess um that's fine i mean that's fine it's it's a serious story uh but it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of comic relief coming in this you know, one of the criticisms that uh, that I've read about about uh, that makes Foundation so difficult to do as a TV show is how TV shows these days tend to concentrate on the characters and their relationships, and um, there are not a lot of relationships in Foundation, and there's not a lot of strong characters. Um, there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of story, but finding ways to create tension between the characters. Um, you know, that's that's going to be up to the people who are making the show and it does look like they've done some of that there's going to be some some kind of uh, uh interaction between characters that looks uh, that looks interesting yeah i hate to say it again but we're we're back where we always come back to which is we're going to wait and see yeah well i mean one of the things from from goyer's interview it certainly seems like he's aware of the uh the issue with the the characters and they're working on addressing that so that's some that adds some hope um, that, that, that this will be good. Your, your point is still well taken, John, that there's very little humor here. I mean, if we can call this uh, space opera, it's definitely more uh, Wagner rather than Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a lot of the just the epic kind of grand scale, you know, galaxy explosion, collision, whatever. Grand Guignol. Right? Yeah. Um, one one thing that I am mildly encouraged by in this new trailer is that uh, we get Jared Harris saying something along the lines of, uh, if there's going to be a new 
a new uh, empire arising, we need to build upon a foundation of knowledge, mm -hmm. which gives me hope that this TV series will be dedicated to the Encyclopedia Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> my, my hope springs eternal with that. Yes. Maybe there'll be a souvenir edition of the Encyclopedia Galactica. Oh my God, I need buy. it. <laughs> I, I need it. If, it, <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not being sold, uh in the apple bookstore then i i think i'm going to write it as fan fiction <laughs> there you go and then maybe we can get it signed by a thousand year old hologram yeah <laughs> yeah so um i mean i i have to admit the anticipation is building here i mean mm -hmm. we've been doing this for quite some time several months and um i'm i'm really getting to the point where it looks like it's really happening i think for a while it was kind of very abstract you know is it is it even coming is it even happening and now uh it's pretty clear that they've actually done something. They've actually made something and they're going to show it to us. And as we have found out, they're going to show us a lot of it all at once. Uh, we're going to get the first three episodes on September 24th. So since you mentioned that, why don't we just say a word about our, the news for our own little podcast and how we're yeah. going to proceed. Um, so far, our plan is we're going to have, this is, this is the last episode of our season one. Well, I think, I think actually, is that true or is next episode the last episode? Because next episode is when we're all going to just kind of pant about how it's coming next week. And then. Yeah. So then, that, that, I, I, say, I say that's entirely about the series. So that's that's episode one. Okay. Okay. That's okay. fair. So next, next, next episode will be episode one of season two when we maybe say a word about what we've read, but also look forward to the series. And then after that, we are going to switch to a weekly format if we can keep it up right uh and we're going to possibly try to do the first three episodes all at once if we don't die from tv watching and uh after that we're gonna more or less record an episode a week as each episode drops so if you don't want spoilers don't listen to the podcast until after you've watched the episode. Yep. Yep. I mean, the basic story, I think we've already spoiled over the last 20 or so weeks. Although I, I guess there's going to be a lot in the TV show that wasn't in the books. So we'll, uh, we're still yeah. at risk of spoiling. But I think, I think we're just going to have to grit our teeth and go ahead and, and spoil away. I mean, honestly, you know, the, the series has been out there for 70 years. Right. So at some point... <laughs> You've got to assume that people have had a chance to figure out what the plot is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and with stuff like this, you can never really tell if something from the, from the source material yeah. is going to end up in the, in the novel or, or in the TV show, or if it's going to be completely different. Probably won't be completely different, but. Well, I think we're just, we're just saying right now, we're not going to worry about it. We're just going to, we're going to talk about what we see and um, you know, that's just the way it's going to be. Either you're with us or you're not with us, and we're <laughs> we're going ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's very exciting. I'm definitely getting getting very uh, you know the anticipation's building. But in the meantime, we have we have other wood to chop, and um, right now we've got some trivia questions that Joseph is going to ask Dan in our Indeed. possibly the last edition of our uh, of our Asimov trivia. Yeah. Okay. So. Um... Dan, you were actually forewarned here. This is the last format, uh, or this is the same format as last time. Mm -hmm. So I will describe a uh, Asimov short story, and you will give us, uh, hopefully, you will give us the titles of all of them. Yeah, don't hold your breath, but <laughs> let's, let, let's go ahead with it. Well, I was well, I one for six, just to remind anyone who's, who cares. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping some of these are, are not too bad, but I, we, we <laughs> that remains to be seen. I suppose. Hey, hey Joseph, do we want to resolve the mystery question seven that you asked last week before we um, go ahead and ask Dan? Yeah, why don't we do that? So, um, what was that? That was this story bears some similarity similarities to evidence. Right. Was the American president assassinated or was that his robot double? Um, that was the Tercentary incident. Came out around 1976. They were looking for uh, stories set at the tricentennial. This was one of them. And I don't know why, why, why Asimov decided to use the fancier, fancier word for tricentennial. All right. Let's, all let's right. move ahead. Let's move ahead. Okay. I'm not rooting against you at all, Dan. 
<laughs> Not at all. All right. Well, <laughs> Fingers crossed these aren't too bad. Asimov's first public, published story, which appeared in Amazing Stories rather than Astounding. Uh, a space liner is struck by a meteoroid and everyone on board is killed except for three people. Um, that, I, I'm, I'm going to say the survivors. <laughs> Sadly, no. Okay. Um, no, that was, uh, <laughs> that was marooned off Vesta. Okay, um, of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. Um, um, and um, actually, Algis, Algis Birdie uh, reviewed an anthology that included this story. He said, quote, Marooned Off Vesta was indeed Ike's first sale. His first story came several attempts later. Oh. So, that's <laughs> a little right. bit funny. Okay, so yeah. um, this is the third published robot story it involves Susan Calvin and a robot, a robot that can read minds. Okay, I know this. That's liar. That is liar. Exactly. With right. an exclamation point on the With, end. Exactly right. That was getting... the softballest of softball questions, Joseph. <laughs> it was. I wanted to have. I wanted to have at least one in there. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, actually, I was. I was pondering this. I think that might be the origin of the trope that we saw so often in Star Trek where Kirk breaks a computer just by talking to it. Oh, yeah. That's that's a pretty good call. Okay, so there's two. So one out of two so far. So this is one of three Asimov stories that were expanded into novels by Robert Silberberg. It's also the only one of the three that has a different title from the original short story. Um... I, I am drawing a blank. I'm sorry. Probably shouldn't do this, but here's a hint. It was a major motion picture. Maybe not a major oh. motion picture, but a motion picture. Bicentennial Man? It was Bicentennial Man. Oh, okay. Well, you know. So uh, you don't have to give me credit for that. Fair enough. <laughs> um, well, actually, it seems, like, it seems like John is the one that keeps count. So I'll, I'll let John make the call. No, it's, I'm, I'm completely biased here. I want Dan to do as badly as possible so I don't look so bad. So That's Fair fine. Enough. Yeah. That's count, fine. Count, count me um, as doing badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually, um, I got a lot of this stuff from a site called AsimovReviews.net. Um, okay. the, the guy who, who wrote on this was very disappointed with the novelizations of, of Nightfall and The Ugly Little Boy. So he didn't enjoy, and it didn't enjoy either. Silverberg had done okay, but not really as well as Silverberg can do or Asimov deserves. He wrote, here the opposite is true. This novel is a sterling piece of work. It is as good as Silverberg can do, and it is worthy of the original. Dare I even breathe it in some respects is even an improvement. So okay, that's um, quite then, if we're going to read one of the three, I think that would be the, the, the one to read. And I love Silverberg, so I'm, I'm tempted. Our next story is set in 2005. The world population is six billion, 6 billion, and there is widespread famine. The World Food Organization plans to poison one-third of the population to keep the rest from starving and blackmails a biochemist into helping with their plan. Um, okay. I do know that at some point I have read this one. Just about the last thing we need right now is notions of shadowy world government trying to assassinate people. <laughs> like people well, you know what? That... that, that that's a fair point. I, I was actually drawn to the uh, similarities to the really stupid plot of um, of Infinity War. Yeah, I was thinking of that. I was also thinking of Kodos the Executioner from Star Trek. Oh my god! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Uh, Who has the same stupid plan as as? Yeah. The yep. Yeah. Stories about population control are just, as a rule, bad. Maybe maybe there are some authors who have done a great job of them, but I have not seen. I think yeah. it was it was a pretty hot topic in the 1970s. It certainly it, was. Yeah. It's, like I I know my my father was very interested in the topic at one point, but you know I've been I've been persuaded that a lot of the rhetoric around those movements was you know sort of tinged by by some racial fears that the wrong the wrong kinds of populations were growing and mm. and, and and it it didn't really. Um, you know, of course, it, that 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 isn't the problem that we really run into, as it turns out. So, anyway, what is the title? Uh, the title is "The Winnowing." 
Oh yes, of course. Okay. And, and it, it is a fairly it is a fairly weak story, but um, actually it was commissioned by a, a, a magazine called Physicians World, which went out of business and 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 the story got returned, and so he resold it to Analog. But which might be indicative of why it's not the, the best Asimov story of all time. Okay, this is a fun one. Claire Belmont has a humanoid household robot named Tony. Tony realizes that Claire has low self-esteem, so he decorates the house, treats her to a makeover, and does some other things. Claire falls in love with Tony. <laughs> I, I don't know. Once again. Yeah, that one's called Satisfaction Guaranteed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which... Uh... I'm just okay. getting shades of, of Data and Tasha Yard. Or the Lige Bailey story, right? Oh, yeah. And, or yeah. Helen O'Loy, for that matter. That's not Asimov. Who was that? Doesn't matter. Okay, last one. And, and Dan, I, I, I had you in mind when I was, I, was, I was thinking about this one. This story involves a time viewer that can be used to look into the past. A history professor wants to study Carth ancient Carthage, but can't get permission from the government. Oh, darn it. Oh, Yes, I I know this one, and then it oh it 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 turns out that he is uh, the device can't go can't go back that far. Yep, and then he it the whole thing revolves around it being actually a a spying device as it works out. But yep. I don't remember the title. Well, the title's the dead past, but I think maybe you told me enough. I mean, you clearly remember the story. I think that. Ought to be enough. Yeah, I think according to, to the rules of either give the title or give a description that shows right. that you know what story. I think that qualifies. Yeah. And there you go. So that's two. That was a very clever story, honestly. Like that, I, I think that's one of my uh, my my favorites in terms of getting an actual like surprise in the way that uh, technology is portrayed as working out in in practice. Yeah, I, I love the way that he de dealt with the unintended consequences there, but it's a very, it's a very fully fleshed out story. That, that is one of my favorite Asimov short stories. It's an interesting idea, this sort of partial time machine, because I can think of several stories by several different authors involving limited time machines. Like mm -hmm. there was one Philip K. Dick story that got made into a movie with Ben Affleck. I think it was called Paycheck, mm -hmm. where you're able to do, you, there's a time viewer and he was able to do very small amounts of manipulation, but, but there was no actual time travel involved. And Clifford Simak had a, uh, a concept that he, I think he used in more than one story, this thing called a time scoop, where mm. you could go back and like, take something. And uh, one of the things that happens is they go back and they bring William Shakespeare into the present, and he admits that he didn't write any of the plays. And, uh, and so the time history department uh, spends its time taunting the English department with, <laughs> with this fraud, William Shakespeare. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah, that and that that time scoop. That's the basic premise of the the ugly little boy as well. They don't get Shakespeare. All right, so we're going to give you what? We're going to give you two or a little bit more than two out of out of six because there was the one where you sort of got two. credit. Two, I'll take a two. Two is generous. Okay. Well, I think I don't, I don't have the totals, but I, I think it's pretty clear that both of you beat the crap out of me at this. So uh, I'll accept last place, uh, the honors of last place, and then we'll figure out um, and we'll we'll figure out which of you two has has actually defeated the other. Or we could call it a tie. We could do three that. Way. We could go I mean, three the, way tie. The <laughs> yeah. stakes couldn't be higher, honestly. It couldn't be. <laughs> it could not be higher. It's true. So shall we shall we delve into uh, the, the finale of, of Second Foundation? Uh, yes, what I like to call the, the young adult version of Foundation. So um, I guess we do a little bit of a story uh, recap. We, we, we meet 14 year old Arcadia Darrell, who is the granddaughter of Torin and Beta Darrell from the from the previous story. And she is precocious. She is I, Asimov's idea of a 14-year-old girl, I'll, I, I, I've never been a 14-year-old girl either, so I don't know, but it, uh, it struck me as uh, possibly if I was a 14-year-old girl, I might have a few things to object to. Uh, but she's writing an essay about the Selden plan, and, and uh, once again, the exposition machine 
is running at 100%. This is our version of the exposition as she talks into a transcriber and uh, basically tells us the story so far in which she does feature the role of her grandmother who uh, we all remember killed Ebling Miss before he could tell the mule the location of the second foundation. Um, Can I just jump in here and please say do. that- Please And say that I am really disappointed at how little progress voice to text has made in like 20,000 years. I know. I mean, that technology, that, that dictaphone, whatever, it was just terrible. It was- Autocorrect hard. still sucks. Yes. Thousands of years in the future. Yes. She, okay. she says she mispronounces one word she, she doesn't know how to pronounce it. She, she pronounces the word intricacies as intricacies and, and the damn thing does not correct her. So, <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting piece of technology, right? It's, it's a thing you talk into it and it writes stuff out for you. Asimov didn't quite get the idea that we wouldn't necessarily have to have handwritten things. So this is a machine <laughs> that handwrites your transcription. Still, I mean, you know, why not? What, what the heck? It was, it, was the, it was the late 40s. It was still pretty good. Anyway, there's a knock on her window and this, this person, this, this man arrives at her window and she proceeds, to, uh, she proceeds to tease him and taunt him, but she realizes that he's a visitor for her father, that her father is plotting something against the Second Foundation. It's actually a pretty amusing scene. Um, at the end of it, as dad and this guy, whose name is uh, Peleus Anthor, as they're going downstairs, he makes a crack about how uh, if she ever marries, he should just kill the husband to put him out of his misery. And, uh, you know, I have a daughter. And I just thought I would I would probably have taken a punch at this guy if he said that to me about my daughter. Yeah, actually, when I was uh, we listened to this when we were driving home from uh, from St. Louis. So I, I usually don't listen to these with Joanne, but we were listening to listening to this in the car and. I was actually asking her about some of the stuff like, you know, the early part of that chapters, Arcadia fairly focused on her looks. And, and, and I, I was, you know, what, you know, Asimov doesn't do that with male characters. I asked her about it. She's like, no, no, everybody does that male and female. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but then um, when we got to that bit, there were a few expletives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So as it turns out, Arcady, uh, she calls herself Arcady, her full name is Arcadia. Her father is in fact plotting. He has put together a, a cabal of, of various people. Uh, Homer Munn, the librarian, Peleus Anthor, who is a student of Dr. Darrell's former colleague. Uh, and by the way, his name is also Torin Darrell. So I guess he's Torin Darrell Jr. But he's, a, he's a, a, an academic, not a trader. Um, a few other people in the in the little conspiracy, and they're trying to figure out what to do about the second foundation. Uh, they they say that um, you know in their minds, now that the mule is gone, the second foundation is the true enemy, and uh, something's got to be done about it. And um, I guess they decide that they're going to send Mun, the mild mannered librarian, off to Calgon to try to find out what he can find out at the mule's old palace. Calgon is currently being run by Lord Stetton, who is the, the new first citizen of Calgon. It, it took me a while to realize that he's six feet, six inches tall. Did you, did you guys notice that? Not at first. He is a very large person, this uh, Stetton. Um, so, so Mun is going to, Mun is, they, they convince him somehow to go off. And he has the, he has the premier collection of Muleania, in the, in the galaxy so it's natural for him to want to go also he has a ship for some reason um, he goes off and arcadia stows away on the ship and uh and they go off and they have adventures on calgon uh, meanwhile we start to get those interludes that i liked so much from last time that i assigned to the previous story but actually are in this story where we see the first speaker of the second foundation the leader of the second foundation with a student whose name i think is a student and we hear about the prime radiant, which projects the plan up onto a wall. We see how the changes have been made to the plan over the years. And the student uh, realizes that the plan has, is basically in a shambles and that the, the new plan is to try to manipulate individuals. And um, it's shocking to the student who was never told growing up that the second foundation had basically failed in its, uh, in its remit to keep the plan going and is now doing things on a, you know, shoelaces and spit 
but that's what's that's what's happening. By the way, if either of you guys want to take over the telling of the story, please, <laughs> or want to jump in at any point, I mean, I'm why would we much. start now? You've you've done such a, a great job so far. <laughs> yeah, anyway, exactly. so you got you got basically you've got three different scenes. You've got you've got Doctor Daryl and his friends who are trying to figure out how to defeat the Second Foundation. You've got Homer and Arcadia who go off to Calgon and they meet Lord Stetton and his mistress, Lady Calia who is suspiciously not super beautiful or intelligent. She's kind of plump and uh, I don't know other way to say it, extremely stupid. One wonders why Lord Stetton stays with her, but that question is going to be answered. And, and then you've got the second foundation, the speakers and the student uh, who, who have some kind of a plan and they're discussing, they're discussing how to manipulate individuals out. They have absolutely no room for improvisation everything has to be done exactly as planned uh the whole thing is on the, the edge of a knife so arcadia and and homer are, weren't going to get permission to visit the mule's palace but somehow they talk uh arcadia talks lady calia into talking lord stetton into letting mun go into the palace meanwhile dr daryl and friends back home on terminus Dr. Daryl is, is building some sort of a machine. We don't really get the details of it, but he's doing something. Uh, he's building a thing. Um, so Lord Stetton begins to, uh, he begins to realize that maybe he would like to, um, how shall I put it? He would like to marry Arcadia so that he can have a member of the foundation's aristocracy as his wife. Now, Arcadia is 14 years old. And this is not the first time, by the way, that we've seen this sort of mustache twirling villain go after one of the women in this story. I think Arcadia is the youngest. Beta was already a married woman when uh, the crown prince of, of the empire had the same sort of attraction to her. Uh, but I did find that a little bit creepy, I must admit. Yeah, those, that was a lot creepy. <laughs> okay, Let's a lot. be honest. Yeah. Um, it was really, really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I, I thought I saw it coming because he said something about wanting to, like, you know, marry someone from an important fa family from the, from the foundation. And then I thought it went away. And then it, they're right there in chapter 14. It was ugh. So Arcadia runs away with the help of Lady Calia and she heads off to the spaceport. She thinks about going home, but then. She realizes she can't go home and she's going to go to Trantor. She had been born on Trantor, we find out, uh, when her father had visited earlier. But she doesn't really remember it, but she just thinks, I'll go to Trantor. It's as far away from home as possible. I have to keep my, my dad safe. I have to be safe. And she runs into, and I actually love the spaceport scene where she runs into a farmer and his wife from Trantor, Prem Palver and Mrs. Prem Palver. As I think I've said before, they're the closest thing Asimov gets to sort of an Eastern European uh, family that might represent his own background. You know, he's born in Russia. Uh, they seem to speak heavily accented galactic standard. I always admit, I admit, I always imagined them with a couple of live chickens with them or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, very much. I, I think he describes Preem Palver's face at some point in this story as round and ruddy, a description that Asimov loves to use, but He's a little fat guy who's totally out of place. And they, they kind of take Arcadia under their wing. Um, somehow they get past the police and, and they go off to Trantor. She escapes from Lord Stetton. And what, she spends a bunch of time with, with the Palvers and she has a revelation, uh, which she doesn't quite tell us about at first, but she has this revelation about where the second foundation is. And she gives, pre, she convinces Palver to go off and try to trade with the foundation because in the meantime something that homer munn told lord stetton made lord stetton decide to attack the foundation so there's a war between calgon and the foundation going on palver decides to go run the blockade and uh and trade his agricultural products because that's what's happening on trantor now they're growing agricultural products they're tearing down the metal and making uh and making farms and he's a farmer so he goes off and uh, we do see a battle between Calgon and the Foundation in which um, we do see that morale is a huge issue, that the Foundation soldiers just believe they can't possibly lose a battle because they've got the second Foundation on their side. We assume that the Calganians have exactly the opposite issue where they believe they can't possibly win against the Foundation. And so the Foundation 
has a lot of success in the war. They win the war. Palver arrives on uh, on Terminus. Uh, everybody's having a big party. And now we get the multiple revelations from the various people telling us where they believe the second foundation really is. Um, and this is really the climax of the story. So Homer Munn starts out saying that there is no second foundation, that he realized that the whole thing was just a scam. And that's why the mule never found it. And that was what he told Lord Stetton. And that's why Lord Stetton launched his attack against the foundation because he believed there was no second foundation so no one was going to help the first foundation so he was going to be able to beat them there's there's a big piece of the story that i left out which is that dr darrell has figured out how to tell whether someone has been tampered with by the second foundation from a brainwave reading so everybody in the little group took their brainwave readings including arcadia before all of this started and they take a new reading of homer and they realize that he's been tampered with so they actually, in a pretty amusing scene, they, they jump on him, tie him up and gag him, which I thought was kind of unnecessary, but okay, they, they did that. And then, so then Peleus Anthor comes up with his theory of where the second foundation really is. And he says, well, everything that happened with the mule happened on Calgan. You know, all the, you know, the mule took over Calgan, he lost on Calgan, people were tampered with on Calgan, blah, 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 blah. The second foundation must be on Calgan. And uh, Dr. Darrell says, that's very interesting, but let me demonstrate for you this new device that I built, this machine that I built, it's a mental static device, which can um, cause great pain. It's like a blinding flashing light. If you've got the right sensory organ, like second foundationers must have in order to, to do their mental manipulation. He gives the controls to Peleus who tries to turn the dial, nothing happens. This was a bit of a weird scene. And, and Dr. Darrell says, yes, of course, because I didn't give you the real one. And he takes out another device, turns the dial up and Anthor just screams, turns yellow, falls on the floor. He's a second foundationer and the, um, and the mental static device has, uh, you know, has disrupted his brain. And uh, he confesses that, that in fact, um, he's a second foundationer. And Dr. Darrell reveals the message that he got from Arcadia the, that convinced him of where the second foundation was. And, this, and the message is a circle has no end. And that means that basically because Terminus is on the edge of the galaxy, if you draw a circle around the edge of the galaxy, you get back to the beginning. And so the sec second foundation must be on Terminus. And Anthor confesses that in fact, the second foundation really is on Terminus except for a couple of people out in space, like Lady Calia, who turns out to be an agent of the Second Foundation. Uh, by the way, Arcadia figured that out earlier. So there's, there's 50 or so Second Foundationers on Terminus, five or six out in space, and that's it. So, so that's the answer that satisfies everybody. Um, and then just to be sure, Dr. Darrell goes and takes a brainwave reading of Arcadia to make sure that she hasn't been tampered with. And he sees that the brainwave reading is the same as her original brainwave reading. Everybody's happy. The second foundation has been defeated. And hooray, the first foundation has won and can go on and, and form a new galactic empire. And then finally, finally, in the last chapter, we get the actual answer. We get the truth in a conversation between the first speaker of the second foundation and the student um, they talk about how they convinced the first foundation that they had destroyed the second foundation, that it was necessary to do that in order for the plan to continue. They're not terribly worried about the mental static device because they think that the first foundation is just going to let that technology lapse now that there's no more threat from or no more perceived threat from the second foundation. And the, the first speaker reveals two facts. One is that a circle having no end actually uh, is not the right answer that the, the star's end quote that Harry Seldon had given as the clue and the fact that the second foundation was on the opposite end of the galaxy was that it was on the social opposite end of the galaxy. And what was more socially opposite from Terminus at the time of the foundation, the, the establishment of the first foundation, but Trantor. And yes, it is revealed to us that Trantor is the actual real location of the second foundation. And that's why Ebling Miss was so surprised when he discovered it. 
And that is the truth. And the person who is delivering this truth to us, once again, it's the round and ruddy face of Prem Palver, first speaker of the Second Foundation. And that's how the book ends. And I would admit, I didn't see it coming. Um, it was interesting that he, even Asimov notes that uh, there is a physical explanation that makes um, the opposite of the galaxy work for Trantor, which is that the galaxy is a spiral. And that if you move along the spiral, the opposite end of the spiral from the edge is the center. But uh, I guess nobody, nobody figured that out. Um, and then there's also this little poem, um, that this lost poem that Prem Palver knows, that all stars lead to Trantor. Trantor is where all stars end. So there, we've been telling you from the very beginning, <laughs> we've been telling you where the second foundation is at the end of every single episode when Joseph tells you goodbye from Trantor from, 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 uh, from Star's End. So, ha. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we spoiled it after all. That's we right. spoiled the secret. So that was a long explanation. I am going to stop talking and let, let you guys hash out your thoughts about this story. Okay. So let me, let me say a few words about uh, Arcady because she's, in some respects, she's the, the most unlikely and, and one of the more interesting heroes we've gotten in this series so far. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily have expected Asimov to kind of conclude this original trilogy with uh, a teenager. We, we get a lot of teenagers in fantasy and sci-fi and, and often, you know, often they're written in the way that teens see themselves because I guess teens are often the main readers for the, for the genre, uh, at least some, some kinds of the, of the genre. Um, and one thing, even though this doesn't treat Arcady well and like there's issues of gender here, I kind of like the fact that she, although she's a likable character, she has some of the faults of a 14-year-old. 14-year-olds <laughs> have some wonderful qualities, but um, like good judgment isn't always one of them. <laughs> Arcady doesn't always have the best judgment and, and she, she makes mistakes and it's kind of fun to watch her make mistakes. And, but somehow to me, that doesn't lessen my liking for her as this kind of plucky young heroine. Um, that, that's not to say that this is a, a perfect, you know, um, kind of modern uh, writing of a female character. I don't think it is, but, but I, I kind of like her and I like, I like her in, better because she's a kind of flawed teen character. Yeah, she's a flawed, flawed teen, but I like the fact that, that throughout she is obviously an in, in, intensely intelligent. Yep. You know, to the point where she is noticing things that, uh, uh, you know, should be obvious like if you come to a window instead of a door, you draw attention to yourself. That's a bad way to be covert. Right. Uh, it seems, <laughs> seems, seems to escape all of the um, all of the, the adults. And yeah. honestly, I mean that that particular interaction just be almost became a theme throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire story. Um, yeah, I mean her dad, who is an intelligent man himself. And he's very worried about her and everything. And he's a single father and all that. But he treats her like an absolute moron who couldn't possibly have anything to say that's intelligent. And she clearly is very intelligent. And they, you know, they do follow her advice in the end. But that does make you like her, especially when you're a teenager, right? Reading the story, because you, you just think about all the times that your parents or your teachers treated you that way. Like you had absolutely nothing to say. And, um, you know, that, that rang true to teenage me, for sure. Well, I'd have to say if, like, when my daughter was 14, if she had absconded on a spaceship, <laughs> I, I, I would have said, you know, to hell with the plot, like, I, to hell with the, you know, the survival of the First Foundation and the success of Selden's plan, that girl is coming home now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. Although I have to say that with my daughter, my wife and I learned very early on 
uh, to respect her uh, her opinions about things because she was right all the time. <laughs> you know, she knew she knew certain subjects. She just knew a lot of stuff, and and so we, yeah, we learned very early on not to uh, not to cross her too much intellectually. So I guess okay. I had that. But yeah, I agree. If she if she'd gone off on a on a, uh, <laughs> a spaceship, even with a uh, even with a stuttering librarian, I, I think I would have probably uh, <laughs> probably wanted her to come home. But it was it was a good story for uh, you know for for the teenage reader. And you know it's true you point out that that so many of these stories had teenage protagonists. And I just think of how many. I mean, even Star Wars has a guy who's basically supposed to be maybe sixteen years old as the protagonist. But plenty of the classic um, you know the stories by Heinlein or or Arthur C. Clarke or Asimov do feature teenage protagonists. And it, and it is it is very easy when you're a teenager to, to stick yourself into the story that way. So it's a it's an easy and uh, and and cheap way of getting the getting the readership engaged, but it works. What about the actual story itself, the mechanics of the story, the idea of, of these this hunt for the second foundation, the the various answers that that come up should the first foundation, I guess my question is, should the first foundation at the end of all this really have been convinced that they had destroyed the second foundation? Well, maybe not, but I mean, that was sort of the ending that they needed so that the plan could continue. Right. I mean, that that's the central, the, the central assumption of psychohistory is that it doesn't work if people know that they're being observed. It answers the question that they set up. I'm not exactly sure how, how successful that particular aspect of it is, but at least it was a conceit at the end that made sense. What did you think of the multiple endings? I thought, okay, unlike unlike what we were saying earlier about the um, uh, about the trailer taking itself too seriously, I laughed a lot during the last three chapters. You know, because I mean, it's just it's a reveal after reveal, and at some point, there's a comment that just seems to be stuck in there. Uh, Asimov writes, "Quote: Successive shocks have a decreasing effect." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, I get it. I'm doing this a lot, but and I know it's 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 becoming less interesting. But <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. And I think that's uh, that's before um, Anthor tells us that he thinks the second foundation is on Calgor. I, I thought the idea of them tying up Homer and gagging him was pretty hilarious. Like, what what yes. did they think they were accomplishing by doing that? This poor kind of mild mannered librarian tied to a chair <laughs> <laughs> might be an agent. You know, he, 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 even when there's no detective in sight, he, he, Asimov tends to replicate some of the structures of detective novels. Right. And, uh, you know, this, this sort of just smacks of the whole, you know, trope of uh, now guests, please gather in the parlor room while I reveal who, who, who killed the, the victim. Um, but then, you know, with these multiple reveals, it is almost like a satire on, on the whole trope. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of fun. I, I think that this is, you know, often Asimov has these kind of big reveals uh, where, you know, you look back on all the events of the story and they, everything is cast in a new light. You know, it's not always that successful. I, I think here there, there's some of the straining of logic as well but but it i don't know it just kind of clicks and kind of works as a as a fun uh way to round this up and and i think you know as you mentioned john there's it is a little bit more surprising uh at least on your first read that uh that things are tied up the way they are right um, so I, I think it's you know i think it's one of his more successful efforts in this regard do you think there's any element of him kind of saying, I've written this kind of very serious space opera thing and I'm done with it and I'm going to tie it up with something that maybe is a little more satirical, that is a little more fun, that's a little more funny because there is a bunch of funny stuff in it. And, and one thing that, that strikes me is that he tells us that when Arcadia grows up, she's going to be famous for two things. One is writing a biography of her grandmother, Beta. And the other is for writing crappy romance novels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible that he was sort of giving a little self-satirizing twist. Um, if so, then he forgot about that 
when it came to write the sequels, the, the further sequels 30 years later, because he, he kind of goes back to more self-serious uh, twists, I think. In, uh, Although, to be fair, he does answer that question, should the first foundation have believed that the second foundation was destroyed with an emphatic, absolutely not, no one would have been fooled by that because the, clearly they, they do, uh, they're not, they're, the people in the sequels are not buying the idea that the second foundation has been destroyed. True enough, yeah. But it is, it is the, the whole thing is, is very different in, in tone and seriousness from, uh, from the previous foundation stories, but it is, it is fun. It's fun. It's funny. Um, I, I think it was a good way to, to wrap up the story. I'm, I'm curious if they ever get there. I'm curious what the TV show will do with that. Because the TV show, I mean, look, it looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. But boy, it really does look like it's taking itself seriously. It does. Um, yeah, one of the things I've read recently um, is that by the time Asimov got to this story, he was sick. He was very sick of the foundation. Right? <laughs> I mean, the last two stories in, in, in a sounding were called now you see it and now you don't. The last thing is and now you don't. And so I think he was he was ready to just, you know, put the end on it and walk away. You know, he wasn't making any money on it. He wasn't you know, he actually didn't make much money at first from the books. Um, and, you know, it was a long time before Doubleday actually you know, convinced him. They they started working on him as soon as they got the books, and took him a long time to convince him to write more foundation stuff. Um, so this might have really been him just saying, "Okay, <laughs> here you go," and and now we're done with now we're done with the foundation stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was it was as Dan said, it was thirty years before yep. he wrote any more foundation stuff. You know, I'm pretty sure they they must have been after him <laughs> on a on a regular basis to go back and and write some of it as as time progressed i'm sure that everyone realized that he could have written anything and slapped the word foundation on it and there you know it would have been a bestseller mm-hmm. i'm not saying that's what he did by the way no a <laughs> little bit a little bit you're not not saying it either right right i'm not not saying it no, no I, I at some point we should talk about the, the sequels and the prequels because they there's lots to talk about <laughs> i'm not going to do it now but Perhaps on the far side of the TV show. Yeah, or yes. I mean, you know, we're going to get what ten episodes, so and the first three are coming the first week, and then what are we going to do? We're gonna we're gonna have you know we're gonna to have to go back to further uh, further foundation written material. Well, we've got plenty of that actually. There actually is quite a lot. I've just been I actually reread the um, the sequels recently yet again. And um, spoiler alert, I didn't like them any more this time than Aww. I did the previous time. It's just the characters are so unlikable. Oh, whatever. We'll, just, we'll get to that when we get to it. Yeah, well, the uh, Forward the Foundation, and that's the very last one, right? Uh, forward the Foundation was the, the second the, prequel. Right. Well, well, yeah, the very last one. But it was the last one written. written chronologically. Yeah. Um, and so I was I was reading something about that and, and the, the today, probably on that, that same Asimov Reviews website. And the guy was talking about how it was a, an interesting, an interesting look, because, of course, you know, Asimov was in decline and he was going to be saying goodbye to everybody, you know, for real in the near future. And, you know, every chapter is about someone leaving, leaving Harry Seldon's life. Um, and so this is, um, you know, almost an inso- it, it, almost an inside look at how the, the um, Asimov was dealing with his own mortality. Kind of like I don't know if um, either of you are familiar with Warren Zevon, um, well, but somewhat. Yeah, well, his last album uh, called "The Wind" uh, was recorded after he knew he was terminally ill with uh, lung cancer. Right, and that is a very. In- very good and intense listen but it's not a, a, a <laughs> it, it's not a listen you maybe want to repeat all the time yeah wasn't forward the foundation published posthumously probably it might have been well i'm a big fan of terry pratchett you know and he got early onset alzheimer's disease and continued to write books and you could just see like the spark going out of him oh. as he read the books. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to criticize them too much, but you know, and the last one, which is called the shepherd's crown, the last disc world novel um, really was a farewell. You know, he, he said goodbye to his favorite characters. He said goodbye to the fans. I mean, it was, it was uh, yeah. 
that was that was difficult. So yeah, there's, there's certainly an element of that here with Asimov, and uh, and we'll see we'll see what they um, you know they, they haven't really told us where they're going to go with uh, with the story. I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping we get multiple seasons of the show. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Eighty episodes, baby. Eighty. Eighty. <laughs> 80 good episodes, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of a single show that has 80 good episodes. I mean, we're, we're finally going to get there in, in about three weeks. Yeah, 20 days. Well, clear the decks, clear my schedule so I can I can stream it and, and watch the whole thing from beginning to end in one gigantic sitting. Yep. Yeah, so I know what I'm doing next Saturday. <laughs> Not next Saturday, three Saturdays hence. You guys saw that picture I put up on our on our Twitter account of of uh, Jared Harris and his father because his father was the first Albus Dumbledore, Richard Harris. Oh, now yes. that that was not Richard Harris's most famous role or only role. <laughs> he was obviously an actor for quite a long time in Hollywood. I just thought it was kind of funny that Harry Seldon's father was Albus Dumbledore, but I'm not sure what that means. But that means they're going to tie that franchise in too, right? <laughs> Well, it's a multiverse anything is possible anything's possible that's right as long as you've got the the uh, the reality stone you can you can do whatever you want exactly right reality stone and the ip yes <laughs> <laughs> very important that you have the ip all right well shall we wrap it up for this week gentlemen i, I guess yeah, we should i guess we should and then you know next next week which will be the first episode of our second season will be the the the, the final preview of the tv show and then we will we will get those three episodes and watch that crap out of them. Yes, we will. <laughs> and and uh, hopefully we won't be too exhausted from watching them to record. Well, we're just going to have to power through it. I'll make, I'll make heavily caffeinated coffee. All right. All right, then. Good night. And um, yeah, see you, see you in two weeks. Sounds good. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Quinn Blumenfeld for editing the episode. Also, we'd like to credit the music, which is used by a Creative Commons license. It's called It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Goodbye from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.